0: My name is Jared Holt. I'm a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, where I track domestic extremism and how it uses the internet.
1: Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks.
2: So Jared, when you are not knee-deep in research research, and you have a little time for yourself and maybe you're meeting some other people, what is it exactly that you tell them that you do? I
0: usually start and I say, I do political research. And then if they ask, oh, what kind, I say domestic extremism. And usually the table goes a little bit silent. And <laughs> I go, you know, I could tell you things if you really want to know them, but nobody should have to know more than they need to about this stuff.
2: It's interesting that you say political and extremism, sort of two separate sentences and yet connected. Is that. What has attracted you to this work? Or was that a surprise?
0: I started fresh out of college. I went to a place called Media Matters, which listeners might be familiar with. And I was just tracking conservative media, listening to things like Rush Limbaugh and everything. And when I was there, being a younger guy and a creature of the internet, I felt like there was a big blind spot. And this was around 2015. There were all these things happening online between Gamergate, the rise of men's rights activism, places like 4chan and Reddit. This very hard right style of politics was starting to gain steam. And with the rise of sort of a nationalist populist type movement, there was also a lot of hate and extremism that came into the mix with it. We look back on that time now and remember, we were all talking about the alt-right and the alt (laughs) light and trying to make sense of this weird upside down that was gaining steam. And through trying to understand that, kind of accidentally found myself headfirst in looking at extremism. And unfortunately, as the years have gone by, that has proved more and more relevant to understanding the political landscape. And I'm here where I am now.
2: Do you view yourself as primarily a researcher on political issues or a researcher or expert on extremism and hate, or both? At this point, primarily extremist activity
0: online. But unfortunately, I I feel like we're at a place where by understanding extremism online, you kind of get these glimpses into the bigger political picture, which is unfortunate.
2: Indeed. And as a follow-up to that, do you think you would have found your way toward the sort of underbelly of society or did the sort of work take you there? Like, what was your path?
0: It started as an accident, but when I was coming across, I felt like was really urgent and that compelled me to sort of sink my teeth in deeper and deeper. It's like a weird, sick, twisted onion. You know, you keep peeling back the layers of the onion Mm -hmm. And I guess for better or for worse, I had like stomach for it. And (laughs) I I felt a sense of purpose. It's like, well, maybe if I can try to understand this more, then I can bring it to a general audience and try to convince them that they should care about this and that this is an urgent concern. And that kind of drove me forward deeper into it.
2: Where do you think you got the stomach for this?
0: A lot of it probably had to do with my upbringing in Arkansas. So a lot of the like right-wing politics or even just like weird right-wing politics wasn't particularly new for me. So I think I had kind of a baseline of sort of a innate personal understanding of how this worked. And I also think that kind of gave me a better sense of like what the weird stuff really was because like, you know, you kind of see it all in local Arkansas politics and it's like, wait, that's especially bad. I should probably (laughs) look at that. And then also just growing up as a kid, you know, where other people would get really into movies or TV shows, I've just always really been into the internet and there's a lot of crazy stuff on the internet. I've heard rumors (laughs) about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, on the WWW sites. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but um, just kind of trolling around that in my youth and as a young man being drawn to some of the more outrageous things online uh, just for like shock value and entertainment sort of built up a little bit of an immunity to having like really strong personal effects to seeing it, which now that I'm saying it out loud is pretty terrible, but, but it, I guess it helps me get the work done.
2: Whatever it takes, right? I mean, yeah. Um, it's interesting because you said, you know, your work is also helping people understand why they should care about those issues. Is that sort of ultimately one of the things that you hope to achieve is to raise awareness. And how did you move from intellectual curiosity, you know, spending this time seeing these weird movements to feeling compelled to explain it, right? There's a difference between just doing research because it's important to inform versus informing so that people really care. How do you view that sort of difference and why do you sort of approach it in the way that you do?
0: You know, as I was spending more time and seeing some of the more devastating outcomes That hate and extremism have uh you know it's i I mean adl is the king of this right you know uh, keeping stats on uh extremist murders and that sort of thing you know even though they're rare in a general sense of society compared to just like the broader statistical picture they have just a really brutal and devastating impact on some of the most vulnerable societies in the united states so for me a big driver is trying to raise concern and attention to this, you know, encourage people to spend their time and resources caring about this and hoping that at the end of the day, that means that the United States is a safer place and people feel like they can participate in the full Democratic Republic experience, you know, and and feel empowered instead of fearful.
2: Sounds like a pretty heavy
0: responsibility. I mean, I'm just doing my part. I I don't possess any secret sauce to getting us there. It gives me a big sense of purpose to contribute.
2: That resonates with me personally very closely. Do you think that there's a line between research and activism in the sense that we put out a lot of information, we're tracking a lot of movements and educating the public, as you note, but part of this feels like activism too perhaps even more so these days, right, where it's, it's hard to sort of avoid that as long as you have an opinion. Where do you see the line between informing the public and the activism that may be either underscoring that or misunderstood?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know that there's really like a clear line, right? If you have a strong enough opinion, people will call you an activist. And that has never really scared me away from giving my read on any given situation, To me, the most important thing is in this space, especially over recent years, there's been a whole lot of people, and I'm thinking of like random Twitter accounts and stuff they are trying to get clout or raise political money for this kind of thing. I think ultimately what's important is coming to this kind of work from a place of moral clarity. And if that means you've got to say something mean about a Democrat or you've got to say something mean about a Republican, so be it. It's just knowing your values, knowing what's important and remembering why you're doing this work in the first place, which if you want to call me an activist for like hoping the world is a little safer and a little brighter, I'll take it all day.
2: So one of the reasons I've wanted to talk to you was your perspective on the September 18th justice for January 6th non-event that happened in D.C., For listeners, there has been a series of events planned in D.C. and around the country after January 6th, and some of them get more attention than others. September 18th got a lot of attention from the media, from law enforcement, and you were out there saying, these are important issues, but the amount of attention, the amount of oxygen, in a sense that this event was getting, may have actually ultimately been less effective or may have given those organizers more attention than they deserved. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw happening in the lead up to September 18th and why you thought the sort of discussion around it may have been less than helpful?
0: Yeah. So the guy who put together that event, former Trump campaign staffer, That sounds loftier than it is. He was like a data guy who worked for like a handful of months for the Trump campaign and eventually said, see you later. He also was sort of a like extra in the larger like Trump world movie to try to sue to to, like invalidate the election somehow. That lawsuit, like the rest of them, didn't really go anywhere. And he also kind of caught some attention for raising a boatload of money to run some sort of like you know, knockoff investigation into trying to prove that dead people voted in the 2020 election. Got in some trouble with that campaign, and from the way I understand it, sent an email to everybody who donated who said, if you want your money back, you can get it. If not, I'm going to dump it into this new nonprofit called Look Ahead America, which is what put together that rally on September 18th. What was puzzling to me about the amount of attention that that specific event got was that the guy who put it together has hosted two like exact same events in DC before. The first one was less than small. It was like a few dozen people, maybe some cameras, and then this guy standing on the flatbed of a pickup truck with a microphone rambling on. The next one was a little bit bigger outside the DC jail, but even then, we're talking like 100, 150, if I'm being really generous, people, mostly an older crowd. Not anything too crazy. But then he files an event permit application on the Capitol and Capitol Police still being very sensitive and frankly kind of embarrassed in the wake of January 6th, kind of kicks into overdrive and is really overcompensating for this event in hindsight. Once Capitol Police start reacting and trying to assure the public that they're prepared and that this is not going to happen again. Media kind of ran with it too. And Media Matters, speaking of my first place of employment, when I got to DC, they did a count and it was like CNN ran something in the week ahead of the rally. I think probably by the end of it, close to like 80 or 90 segments that mentioned the rally. MSNBC did like a few dozen segments. And kind of the undertone of all of those segments was this speculation or suggestion that something resembling January 6th might be coming down the pipe. But there is no analysis to back that up. And all of the analysis in the world can't predict the future, of course, but it just seemed completely unjustified. You know, I, I would look at these reports and just be like, what are they seeing? Because I've got my nose in like a lot of places it shouldn't be. Right, it's uh, almost like, what am
2: I missing, right? Like right, it's a little concerning.
0: Yeah, but eventually, you know, after I kind of sized up, the guy who was putting this rally together and got into like chat rooms used by people in this organization and all of this which is like completely publicly available if you know where to look i just didn't see it you know i didn't see the momentum and in fact like most things that i found mentioning the rally didn't even occur online until media started hyping mm-hmm. it up in this coverage And then even then, people were freaked out because they had never heard of this, but the media was going crazy about it. And they were like, absolutely not. Do not go to this. It's a trap. Yeah, exactly. So I think media maybe kind of has, and when I say media, I'm speaking in the most general sense. There's plenty of reporters on extremism beats or political beats that kind of saw this for what it was. and tried to be smarter in their coverage but ultimately at the top level there were like editorial decisions at some of the biggest leaders in news places like CNN or the AP Reuters that were just churning story after story after story about this event and i just don't think it was justified and then like at the end of it the guy who put on the thing was very clear he said even though almost nobody showed up to his rally it was a bigger success than he could have ever dreamed because there were like hundreds of cameras there and the whole world got to hear what he had to say which is just January 6th revisionist history.
2: Beyond being inaccurate in terms of relaying who's going to show up and the threat that it might actually pose, are there other concerns that you have about that type of reporting that doesn't seem to match what the reality is on the ground? Do you feel like it amplifies the extremists and they feel like gives them a win, as you just said, the organizer sort of felt because he got so much attention? How cynical, in other words, are you about why this happened? You know, Knowing that people will read an article about the next January 6th, we can be that cynical and say, all right, you know, it's gonna get listeners and viewers and eyeballs on the page. Or do you think that it just is not understanding the landscape and media needing to be a little bit more educated about what's happening, but also the impact of what that can do by getting it wrong?
0: I think it's a little bit of both. The obvious one is that it gives people like the guy who put together this rally, a what was by the time that rally came around, an international spotlight. And even if these articles are like, you know, so and so said this and it's not true, he's still getting quotes. He's still getting little clips of his speeches put into things. And ultimately, it's like it ends up being like a PR boom for this guy. But my broader concern is that. And, you know, national media has kind of done this a few times this year already, since January 6th, there was like a thing in March and a thing over the summer where they were like, oh, QAnon people might come to the Capitol because they think this is the day Trump's going to come back. Nothing ever happened. I think this hyper focus on like, there's kind of a tendency in extremism coverage at the very top of media. Again, I want to be clear that there's like plenty of reporters who absolutely know their stuff and do great work, but at the very top, like once... These stories get into the hands of like national security reporters or justice reporters that like maybe don't work with this stuff all day. There's kind of a tendency to sensationalize it, whether intentional or unintentional by hyper-focusing on like specific people or specific dates or single events and trying to explain like the situation of extremism all focused on one event and that just balloons the hype out. And my concern there is that people who consume that kind of media at the end of the day will walk away from it with a misunderstanding about the state of play of extremism, which is very serious and very active in the US right now, not as violently active as it has been in years past. But, you know, this kind of organizing is going on fairly aggressively on local and state levels, which is where I think, you know, if I could grab a few reporters from that event here and a few reporters there, I'd be like. You go to Arizona, you're going to South California, and I would just like dispatch them all out there because that's where I think the story is. And I kind of worry that, you know, such a disproportionate media response on that September 18th rally might have left people thinking, like, oh, look, the far right is in shambles. Oh, they can't put anything together. What a failure. When that really doesn't even begin to represent the accurate picture of what's going on.
2: That to me is the biggest concern. And I think you were really articulating that throughout. And when it became a bust, I was both relieved that it was a bust, feeling pretty confident that it wasn't going to be a January 6th redo based on what we were seeing, but also concerned exactly to the point that, you know, you have school boards that are being targeted. You're having medical professionals being targeted. Elected officials continue to be targeted. And the front line against this extremist organizing is definitely more local. I was also, I think, though, understanding a bit about why so much of what happened after January 6th is why didn't more people know about it? Why didn't we take every extra step? And so, yeah, there's gonna be an overcorrection, both in media, perhaps in law enforcement, et cetera. And that's what we saw on September 18th. But fundamentally, there was another story there, which is the narrative that the people who are being held accountable for an insurrection are now political prisoners, that narrative is still a powerful one, not based on how many people showed up in DC, but because we know it's still animating people locally. And I wish there was more of a focus on that, because I think that is really relevant. So to you, I just asked, regardless of how many people showed up, this political prisoner narrative, this unyielding denial that what happened happened, how do you view that playing out? actually locally and and where we need to be looking more carefully.
0: It's a very potent narrative. You know, in the first like 48 hours after the Capitol riot, a lot of these communities and the more organized groups were like 1776, 2.0, this is the revolution. And then people started getting arrested and they're like, oh, crap. Um, this (laughs) We got (laughs) to change our tune about this pretty quick. In like that rally on September 18th, that was just sort of a embodiment of a broader sentiment in the far right, which is to try to recast the events of those days as justified in some way, or overblown. And that was another concern I had about the coverage of the September 18th rally, which was that, you know, media would get out there and you had like national news hosts and stuff asking these kind of leading questions or speculating or hosting panelists who would speculate about the potential for a January 6th repeat, which didn't occur. And people might wonder like, oh, well, if they were so wrong about this, maybe they're wrong about January 6th. And that would create another talking point for the organizers of that September 18th rally and sort of the broader far right to use to advance that narrative line. I do want to address something you just said, though, about overcompensation kind of being understandable. And Mm -hmm. I want to make clear, I, I totally agree. Capitol Police and law enforcement and media were caught off guard so bad by January 6th, there's going to be some overcompensation. And I kind of even understand it more from the law enforcement side of things, because even if it is overcompensation, you're like, okay, well, that's overkill. I don't know if that's necessary. It also sends a message that's really important, which is that, you know, US Capitol police are not playing with this anymore. And that if you try to do this, they've practiced and they've got everything ready to go. So I kind of get it in that point. But as far as that narrative goes, it's a very like animating narrative. We've seen like Proud Boys show up at some Major League Baseball games recently yeah. and throw yeah. banners down that are like free the prisoners. They're raising millions of dollars amongst themselves to try to pay for legal fees or to send people money while they're in jail facing trial. And January 6th was such a like monumental thing that will be forever seared into American history. And I just think it's really important that, you know, a collective understanding of what happened that day exists. And, you know, the very people responsible for inciting that are going to and have been working very hard to prevent that from existing or to at least draw a bunch of question marks in Sharpie around that existing. You know, that's just even like one smaller piece of a bigger picture of like, these are the same kind of question marks they've been trying to draw around basic tenets of democracy. I think that is like a much more compelling story. It's maybe a more difficult one to tell, but you should just embrace difficult things, you know, and go for it.
2: I think. <laughs> <laughs> is there advice that you have in terms of the next, you know, random date that is selected, whether it's an event? In D.C. or elsewhere, QAnon's coming back or whatever. There's going to be some other date that may create some buzz online. How would you recommend people deal with that so that they're informing the audience, not being alarmist, adding to the conversation?
0: None of my suggestions are particularly new. This has been a question that academics and researchers, even people that do jobs like yours and mine, you know, we have to sometimes think and be like, do we really want to do a write-up of this? Because then there's a write-up of this that exists. And I think just having that same kind of caution, kind of centering the outcomes of this rather than whatever individuals might be responsible for it and making that the story. Then for reporters more generally, I mean, between the organizations like the ADL and people that do the work that I do, we're all available. We want to help you. We want you to cover this stuff. We we all do this 40 hours a week, not because it's the sexiest job or because it's like a really glamorous lifestyle, but because we care a whole lot and we're here to help you. And if you have questions, just check it by us and we'll point you in a direction that makes sense or or try to give you some context.
2: So- It's interesting, like a lot of folks that I've talked to for this podcast have, you know, 20 plus years under their belt, right? They've been through a lot. And I asked them, you know, what advice do you have for others who are getting into this field? I'm really interested in your answer because you haven't been doing this for 25 years. You've been doing this, I think, since at least maybe around 2015 or so. So it's not totally new to you. And, yeah, like, and so, what advice do you have from someone who's a little bit closer to getting into this line of work? I mean, I've been doing this for like six years,
0: seven tops, maybe mm-hmm. full time, like five and a half, something like that. Yeah. So, I'm like in the scope of like the field. I still am very much like a newbie and fresh. And there's still a ton that I have to learn and will learn as I keep doing it. I don't even know if I'm like qualified to give advice yet. I would say, Probably two things. One is take care of your personal security early. You know, by the time someone figures out where you live and posts your address on the internet, it's too late. Get your social media locked down, do some basic cybersecurity, password manager, two-factor authentication, all of that. Just like cover all your paces, because it can take like a couple of months to get it done all the way. And if something bad starts to happen or you like ruffle the wrong feathers and they start coming for you personally, it's like way too late at that point. You'll just be playing cleanup work and it's a huge headache and you know, when it happened to me the first few times, it really messed me up pretty bad. Now maybe I'm just too jaded, but I'm also really confident in my personal security situation and that goes a long way in ensuring some peace of mind. So even if you're new, get that taken care of early explain to whatever organization you might be working with that that's important and make sure you get that resourced.
2: Where can listeners go to learn more about your work and the work at the Atlantic Council?
0: You can check us out. We're on all kinds of social media at DFR Lab. I publish there from time to time, some longer form stuff. Our team is international. and looking at mis and disinformation all around the globe. So, you know, you hear a lot about like, gop facebook ads and that sort of thing but it can be really interesting to see some of the writing the rest of our team does breaking it apart and being like oh this is like a global thing and this is what it looks like in different parts of the world so i'd go check that out i'm at twitter at jared l holt follow for extremism stuff stay for the dog and, <laughs> and i've got a podcast called Shitpost. post it's a little bit looser a little bit more casual you can check that out if you're interested
2: Awesome. Well, Jared, I really, again, appreciate the time without sounding patronizing, like there's a certain wisdom in how you're sort of doing the work life balance that is really admirable. I don't think a lot of folks who have been doing this for a long time have found that sweet spot. And it's, of course, always evolving, right? And as you know, everybody has the limits that they need to work out for themselves. But I really appreciated hearing that from you. And just really appreciate you, you know, being a force against a lot of the, the hate and extremism that's out there perspectives that are measured and reasonable are going to be more important in the, in the coming years. I look forward to continuing to read and see what you're doing. So really appreciate all the work that you do.
0: Thanks. I appreciate that.
1: ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, PERIL. To learn more, visit american.edu backslash p-e-r-i-l.